worry about this thing though. All right, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 in particular in the sermon. But to begin this, we're just going to read verses 1 through 7 to set the stage for the context. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our king is so much more than what this sort of sentimental Christmas season portrays him as. At the same time, although well, he's more than that, I'm very grateful for the Christmas music, or at least the Christmas carols, not a lot of the other, like Mariah Carey stuff. I'm not into that. Um, but I'm, I'm very grateful for the old school Christmas carols. They remind us of his absolute authority. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. He is king. He is King Jesus. Now, whether Jesus was born on December 25th or not, the symbolism means something. Because here in Isaiah 9, this announcement, this birth announcement of this child that's born and the son that's given comes at a time of great darkness for the people of Israel. And so whether or not he's born on the 25th, I think it's appropriate that during a time when we literally have more darkness, we're celebrating with things like lights, right? And things like that. The imagery that you see, even on the old Christmas cards, you've got the, the, the shepherds out watching their sheep and bang, there's the angels, right? And there's light. All of that is very symbolic. It says it right here in the text, verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Keep in mind to these readers of the book of Isaiah, 
the great darkness that they were facing, Pastor Randall mentioned it in Isaiah 7, is the fact that Assyria is coming up against them to war. And they're there to destroy them, to, to wipe them out. And there's, a, there's these prophecies that come up that, hey, look, even if you get wiped out now, the fact of the matter is God's got a plan for his true Israel. <laughs> and his true Israel will always have a king. Amen. They'll always have a king. And in fact, this whole world will have a king, whether they want him or not. Right. Praise God. I get excited at Christmas time. Because it's, it's the announcement, the, the advent, the arrival that we're remembering. We ought to be remembering it year-round. I pretty much do. We start Christmas music at our house around July. So I, I love this season. And so because it's all about the arrival and the declaration of the arrival of King Jesus. So what we have here in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 in particular is basically three facts that I want to take a look at regarding him. I don't know how far we'll get today. This sermon this week has kind of messed me up just by way of confession. Um, I thought, I've preached this before. I preached it last time, maybe 10 years ago. This verse is one of my favorite verses. These verses are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I kind of approached this thinking, I've got this. I've got this. I'm so glad God showed me that you never have this. <laughs> Right, And so like this last several days, I've been just really working on this because he keeps showing you stuff in his word that you never saw before. And it, look, if you're not into the word of God, I don't know how to tell you, get into it because you'll never have that experience unless you're doing that, unless you're studying the word for yourself. And he will humble you. So Jesus, well, here are the three facts that we're gonna look at. In the first part of verse six, Jesus incarnate. The second part of verse 6, Jesus is glorious. And verse 7, his kingdom will triumph. His kingdom will triumph. So let's start with uh, the first part of verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Just two simple facts. It's right there in the text. First of all, he was a child. He was a child. There was a time when Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity, became flesh and he was born as a baby. But even more than that, when he was conceived, it was miraculous. He was born of a virgin, right? And there was a time even before he was born that he was conceived. There was a time like you and I that that zygote traveled, made the, tr the journey down the fallopian tube to the uterus and attached itself to the wall of the uterus. He was, all of that was part of that. He didn't just show up in the uterus, right? The only thing that wasn't normal is that God did this with a virgin. The rest of it from that point forward was normal development in the womb and normal birth and delivery. And God, the, humble, the second person of the Godhead, humbled himself to that, yeah. to go through all of that. That's how far he is willing to go to become to the eternal son of God, becoming flesh. You look at the cross and you certainly see 
the love of God at the cross. No question, it's where it's most and best amplified and seen. But I'm here also to tell you that it's also seen in that decision of the, of the eternal Son of God, the Trinity, orchestrating this thing. That's also out of love. That's love that would do that. God would do that for his people. So he was a child, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 21 through 23, we see there what's Emmanuel means God with us. They named him Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. We have God with us. We know who God is and what he's like because of Christ, because of Jesus. And so thank God for that. Everybody's, all these world religions, all these cults are all trying to market their version of God. They're all wrong. They're all wrong. They're all doctrines of demons. You should run from them. Every one of them is wrong. You should embrace what the word of God says here about who Christ is. These knuckleheads say things like, well, Jesus is um, Michael the archangel. That's Jehovah's Witnesses. Or you've got the Mormons who say, Jesus is the brother of Satan. Baloney. They're all liars. Let God be true. Let every man be a liar. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and he is God in the flesh. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 say, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Think of that. God sent forth his Son so that we could be made right with God and we ourselves could be adopted into the family of God. So he was a child. He was literally born. However, there is something different being said here when it says that he is a son. To us, a son is given. The child is born. The son is given or sent. Now the son, this is where we get back to this idea of the Trinity. He is the eternal son of God. But the scriptures also say very clearly, and when, if you are a Jewish reader and you're reading this, and you're thinking about a son, what you're thinking about automatically is a son of David. And that's here in the text as we go forward. But every Jewish reader, when they read this, they're going to think back to the promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel 7, especially in verses 13 and 14. In 2 Samuel 7, it says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah, and he is a son who is given or sent. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. He is God. Don't let them tell you he's not. Don't let anyone tell you he's not. The scriptures are very, very clear. James Montgomery Boyce, in his book, Foundations of the Christian Faith, 
It says, as a son, Jesus Christ was sent because he was always God's son. He was not always a child. <laughs> he was a, a spirit there, the second person of the Godhead, but he was sent as God's son. Not only is he a child, not only is he a son, but he is a ruler. Because verse 6 says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government shall be upon his shoulder. The word government just means, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, rule or dominion. His rule, his dominion, he's carrying it. He's bearing the burden of that. Young's Analytical Concordance translates this princely power. This princely power is upon this child, this son who is sent. In Matthew 28, verse 18, right before he gives the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. I have all of it. There's not some of it that somebody else has got. He says, I have, I possess all authority in this. And it's given to me. He is a ruler. The scriptures speak of this over and over again, that he is this ruling king. So he is incarnate. And in his incarnation, you have a child, you have a son, and you have a ruler. If you are facing this Christmas season as an unbeliever, you need to know those things about who Jesus is. He is God. And it makes sense. It just goes, you know, when you say that, that he's God, he's also a ruler, right? It's not two different things that are separated by some big gap. They go right together. If he's God, he's in charge of everything. He's in charge of everything. In 2022, as we get ready to go into 2023, know this, that all the junk that you're seeing out in the world that's happening right now, all the chaos that the talking heads on the news media are talking about, understand that every bit of it, every detail of that is in, under the control and the rule and the reign of King Jesus. Amen. And the, why that's important is because you won't despair. Everybody's despairing right now. I mean, it's been going on for a while. Everybody despairs because they're not getting what they want. And you better hope that God gets what he wants. He's going to get what he wants. Because Jesus is the king. He's going to get what he wants. The people of God should not fret like the people of the world fret. We shouldn't fret at all. In fact, we should have great joy, like it says here. Think about the people of Isaiah's day. They have Assyria, a, a world power, breathing down their neck. And God is saying to them, I'm still the king. No matter who sits on the throne, I'm the king. So embrace that and really live by that. Not just talk about it on Sunday morning, like theologically accept it. And then go back to worrying on Monday. Just trust him. So he is incarnate, but the next part of the verse is wonderful. It's in, literally, it says that in a minute. Um, but I want to just sum it all up by saying he's glorious. He is glorious. And you see these titles. 
in the next part of verse 6, it's just emphasizing how magnificent is this Messiah, this deliverer of the nation of Israel. How magnificent is this God, this God-man, this God who is a child, right? This God who is a son. How magnificent is he? These titles are meant to describe his magnificence. First, he is the wonderful counselor. We live in a day and an age where everybody is medicated for something and everybody's got like a psychiatrist or a psychologist, therapist. Let me just say to you that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He's, a, he's the best counselor is what the idea is. Paul Gilchrist in the theological word book of the Old Testament says the child who is to come and whose government of the world shall rest is one whose plans, purposes, designs, and decrees for his people are marvelous. That's what's included in the counselor here, not just like counseling, but he is wise and everything that he does is wonderful. It's marvelous and his plans are marvelous. You say, I don't know what God's doing. You're right. You probably don't want to know what God's doing. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't have to explain it all to you. But if you want wisdom to live in this, in this life that we're called to live in, you look to him because he is a wonderful counselor. Another great messianic passage is right here in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And it says there, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He has great wisdom. He has great understanding. If you don't have any, and let me just clue you in, you don't. You don't have any, then where do you go? You better go to him. He's a wonderful counselor. E.W. Hengstenberg in his Christology Old Testament says, as a counselor, he is a wonder. Absolutely elevated above everything which the earth possesses in excellency of counseling. All of these names from the early 20th century, like Freud, right? And, uh, and all those jokers, right? Those guys there, they were not wonderful counselors. They're basically perverts, right? They were, they were messed up. And we got people today banking on them. Don't do it. <laughs> Go to this wonderful counselor who has all wisdom. Why do you settle for the counsel of of man, which can only be described as even on its best days as average or weak or passing. Why would you look to them who don't know any more than you do, right? Look to Christ. Go to his word. Look what the word of God says. Get your counsel from there. Learn to feed yourself. And yes, go to your elders. You know, do that but only if your elders and pastors are doing the same thing, pointing you back to the same source, the word, the counsel from the word of God. Reject this stuff that's out there, this humanism, this postmodernism. Reject all of it out of hand, out of hand. Don't even take it seriously. Don't even investigate it and see what they've got because it's nothing. He is a wonderful counselor. That's not all he is, because the next title tells us more. The way it's translated in the ESV 
is that he is the mighty God. You can translate this differently, and the Hebrew term gibor means heroic. He is the heroic God. The RSV, Revised Standard Version, often translates this as warrior. Our God is a warrior. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a warrior. He's not this pansy, effeminate, you know, got the lamb draped across his shoulders, limp-wristed Jesus that you see in all these paintings and the rest of that. You've got to get that imagery out of your head. Best way to do that is read Revelation, like, chapter 1. You'll get, you want, nobody's painted that picture, but that, nobody can, I don't think. And the, and the fact of the matter is, is that Christ, he is a warrior. Psalm 24, verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is a, he, he is a warrior, he goes to battle. He goes to battle, and he's going to win that battle. You're going to see it as we go through the text, because he's the king, and everything rides on his shoulders. We've already seen. He is a glorious, conquering king. We need to think like that. You see every now and then these writers for, like, the Gospel Coalition or something, which I don't have respect for. That You might get that, by the way I'm saying that. Um, these guys will say things like, how do we get men involved in church? These days, you know, we, how do we get men involved so that they care about what happens in church? Well, if you'd stop painting Jesus like a girl, it might help. Yeah, if you'd stop, and I'm not even talking about literal painting, but if you describe Jesus as a feminine, and we're always trying to get everybody in touch with their emotions and worship and all that stuff. Listen, we're men. <laughs> we're, I don't know, what are our emotions? Anyway, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, he's a warrior. And you know, there's a lot that we're called to do in the scripture that's calling men to go to war. But they're not going to war themselves. They're not going there leading themselves into battle like a chaotic army with no commander. No, they're going following King Jesus, obeying the commands of scripture to do what he calls them to do. Part of the problem is we're not teaching men, hey, you know what, you've got a job. You've got a job in the kingdom. First of all, lead your family. That's even offensive to say these days, that a man should lead anything. Men, lead your families. Lead them in the word of God. Obey the scriptures in that regard, right? Go out there and share the gospel with somebody. Say, man, I don't know. You know, men want to conquer stuff. And they like conflict. You like conflict? You like conflict? Men, we do, right? We're supposed to like conflict. You like conflict? Go out on a street corner somewhere with Cody and these guys as they go out on Saturday night, Friday night, whatever, and be there when they share the gospel. I'm not even saying you've got to preach. Hand out some tracts and just be there. Watch Cody get arrested or something. You know, I mean, you got your conflict. <laughs> so I'm just doing this off the top of my head. <laughs> you, you just got to, you got to, you know, this, if the Christian life is boring, it's because you've made it that way. Yeah. Honestly. So I don't relate to all that. Well, you better start relating as a Christian because you're called to do this. You're called to go evangelize. To share the gospel. Go on a missions trip. 
You want to push yourself a little bit, get, step out of your comfort zone, challenge yourself a little bit, throw yourself into a culture where no one's speaking your language. Start eating food there that you've never seen before. You're not sure what it is, right? Go there and, like Pastor Randall says, carry his bags or something. Go hand out some tracks. You can do that. Even if you don't even read what's on the track, just know that we're providing it's gospel. Hand it out, right? And be there. Be involved in those things. Go to war, is what I'm saying. Because Jesus is at war. Just get in the fight. There's plenty of opportunity. You just got to be man enough to stand up and do it. So, he is a wonderful counselor. He is a heroic God. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There will be tribulation, make no mistake, but take heart. He's overcome all of it. This Messiah is God. Flip over to Psalm chapter two for a second. Psalm two. If you are suffering underneath this sickness, of a weak, effeminate Jesus, I can do no better than to point you to Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want him to rule over us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens wrings his hands and worries about it. No. no. He who sits in the heavens laughs. What a joke. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the, de- of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's no effeminate limp to Jesus. He's breaking them, destroying them with a rod of iron. I'm not afraid of this nonsense that's out there. Don't be afraid of it because Christ is king. He's ruling with this rod of iron. He wins. No matter what it looks like. You can say right now, oh, the United States, so bad, terrible. Well, look, we're not the center of the universe. There are other nations, a lot of them, we are in the vast minority population-wise, where a lot of really incredible things are happening. Don't judge what's going on in this world or in the kingdom of God by what's happening in the United States of America. We are a very small part of the kingdom of God. 
Jesus is also the Father of eternity. That's what this means where it says everlasting Father. This reference to eternity speaks to his deity, saying that he's God. But we got to be very clear here. We're not saying that the Son is the Father. You got to watch that in certain places, also in Revelation 1. You have to watch that, that you, careful, that you don't accidentally sort of walk in or back into a heresy, right? Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Yes, he is God. That's where this everlasting comes in. But Father can mean many things. And one of the things that it means is like the originator of something. So what it's saying here is that he is the father of eternity. He is the one who is in charge of eternity. He's the originator of it. He was there with the Father and the Holy Spirit when everything began, even before things began, before there was any earth, and eternity passed. He's the Father of eternity. Luther, Martin Luther says, who at all times feeds his kingdom and church, in whom there is a fatherly love without end. It's part of what you need to grasp here is that Jesus loves you like a father. He's not God the Father, but he loves his church like the Father. And what Luther is saying here, and I think he's right, he has a fatherly love without end for his church. Praise God for that. A lot of you have never had a father who did any sort of halfway passing job in being your dad. It's just the way it is in any church that you go and you preach in and you talk to. But you can know that he's not like that. He's perfect in his love. And even even if you had a great dad, he's still messed up. He never messes up, especially for his church, for his Israel. He does not mess up. He's a father of eternity. He is the Prince of Peace. This is where people do get confused around Christmas time. Uh, even Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the great poet, got confused. The, the hymn or the carol, I heard the bell on Christmas Day. Heard the bells on Christmas Day. Uh, he talks in that, in that hymn about, you know, there's no peace on earth. In despair I hang my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. When we're talking about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, it doesn't mean that since he came, everybody, like war is just going to stop. That's not the idea. After all, didn't we just read a minute ago that he's the mighty God, that he's a heroic God? He's at war. <laughs> so it's, don't get this idea that the culture has that, well, Jesus came, so everybody should just be holding hands and singing kumbaya and you know, just a glowing atmosphere all over the world and everybody loves each other. That's not what's going on here. Now, he will get there because he is the conquering king. And he will inaugurate an age of peace for all creation. But there was no promise that when he came that it would just happen immediately. And you're going to see that as we go forward in the text. But look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 for just a moment. Isaiah 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the multitude of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That will come. That day will happen when all nations are bowed. But it's not going to happen just like with magic pixie dust. And it doesn't take time. And it doesn't have anything to do with the Lord making war against the nations to bring them to submission. It will happen. One day it will happen. I can't even imagine what that will look like. I mean, it says it here, but can you imagine living underneath that rule and reign? That's an incredible victory on the part of King Jesus. How is that going to happen? What has to happen is there has to be, there has to be people getting right with God for nations to come to bow the knee to King Jesus. It means that within those nations, people need to come to Christ. And when you look in the book of Isaiah and you look in chapter 53 and you get to verse 5, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The first thing that has to happen before the United States of America comes to bow to King Jesus is that the first thing has to happen is that you have to bow to King Jesus. Yeah. There has to be a lot of that happening. Yeah. Gee, I wonder how that happens. Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the preaching of the gospel. Hold to the, stick to the stuff, as my uncle used to tell me. Always stick to the stuff, stick to the stuff of the preaching of the word of God. He will do what he's going to do. We can't make that happen by ourselves. He's, he's got to do it. But what we do is we preach the gospel. We preach this gospel of reconciliation. We are ministers of reconciliation. This heroic God will go to war to get that peace. He will make them his footstool. Calvin says the general meaning is that all who submit to the dominion of Christ will lead a quiet and blessed life in obedience to him. Hence it follows that life without this king is restless and miserable. If you are trying to live your life without King Jesus, your life is restless and miserable. You know it's true. The way of the transgressor is hard. That's not just like an exaggeration or a figure of speech. If you decide to choose the way of rebellion against the law of God you are fighting, against King Jesus who will ultimately get the victory, you will lose. You will lose. Don't fight that battle. Give up. Give up. Throw in the white the towel, right? The white flag, whatever. Throw that in and give up. Because you, are, you have sinned against a holy God. Your sin deserves hell. Not hell light, not hell be or something. Hell. That's what your sin deserves. Stop fighting God. You're in the wrong anyway. You're breaking his laws. 
You've lied, you've stolen, you've looked with lust, committed adultery in your heart. You've taken God's name in vain. You've done all of it. You're guilty. Stop fighting and just say, I'm guilty. I give up. I surrender. If you do that, it's because God opens your eyes to it. Because otherwise you'll just be happy being miserable. That makes sense. But you'd rather be miserable than be happy. Stay in your sin and watch your life just burn like, like, like a dumpster fire, right? Just watch it burn and you're like, yeah, it's a pretty good fire. Let me roast some marshmallows over this nonsense. Are you nuts? Don't do that. Repent, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And I'm not saying it's going to just get easy. But I am saying, in fact, it might get harder in a lot of ways. But what I am saying is that you've got Christ. You've got your sins forgiven. You've got peace with God. You're probably going to get some level of your sanity back. And maybe not. You might end up like me. And you just, you need to, you need to just rest in him. Give up. Stop fighting. He is the Prince of Peace. I'm going to try it. I think we can get this done. The third thing I want to point out to you is that his kingdom will triumph. Verse 7, really what verse 7 is doing is, is explaining the Prince of Peace thing. It's, it's saying how this is going to happen. His kingdom will triumph. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. First thing I want to point out to you in verse 7, his government will increase. That's the way his kingdom comes. There's all kinds of teaching out there about eschatology. There's ideas out there that say things like, it's just going to come and that kingdom will just come and it'll be there for a thousand years and then it's over and his kingdom's done. You cannot get that from here. You cannot get that from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7. It's not what it's saying. In fact, if you go to places where you think you can get that, in Revelation, there's only one place that talks about it, a thousand years. And it seems to be a very symbolic thing. Whenever the word or thousand is used, the number thousand is used, it's symbolism to talk about a very long period of time. What we have here is a kingdom and the government that is increasing. It doesn't come suddenly and then establish itself. It's something that happens over time. His government will increase. The Hebrew term for increase is used only five times in the Old Testament. Every time it's talking about increase. There's no other way to understand it. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 37, it's used to discuss interest. You know how interest works, right? You've got credit cards. You know how it works. It increases over time. That's the same way the kingdom spreads. It's gradual. If you look at how Jesus and the, is, talks about the kingdom and the gospels, he's always saying it starts like a mustard seed, really tiny, and then just grows, right? It's, it's a process that takes place. That's how the kingdom works. So don't be discouraged, again, as you look around and you say, well, I've just not seen anything just explode into being. It's just not how the kingdom works. It takes time. The Messiah's reign, Edward J. Young says in his commentary, will be perpetual and progressive. 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. It's not a kingdom that lasts a thousand years over and over and over and over and over again. It says throughout the word of God, it's a kingdom that's forever. Christ is king. Now, say, well, it doesn't seem like it. Oh, really? Well, you know, people are getting saved. People are getting baptized. People are being added to churches. Not huge numbers, maybe like you want to see them, but it's happening. It's happening. The gospel goes out to Mexico. We got a Zoom call we do on Wednesdays where these pastors are being trained and equipped. Their churches are doing the same thing, preaching the gospel, baptisms, membership classes. It's all happening. Just maybe not the way that we want to see it, as fast as we want it, but it's happening. It's not limited. It's an eternal kingdom. And it's not limited to just Israel. It's limited to all the nations. He's going to win them all. Matthew 28, 18 and 20 is a call to disciple the nations. He is going to win. What's the basis of his reign? It's the next part of verse 7. There are four things I'm going to go through quickly here. His reign is, first of all, based on the Davidic kingdom, because it says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. We already referenced that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, but there in verse 16, it says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. It's a promise to David. Your throne shall be established forever. It will happen. Christ will bring it. It's the basis of his reign. His reign is based on two attributes of God. How is it established? Two attributes. To establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The word justice in the Hebrew means conformity to an ethical or moral standard. That's what the word justice means. Is that you have, if somebody's being just, they are conforming to an ethical or moral standard. I wonder what the standard is. Gee, what could it be? Right? God's law, God has given a law, he's given his commands in scripture as a standard. You don't have justice without it. You don't have justice without it. His law is a standard by which he will rule and reign. That is the, the standard. By what standard? People ask that question. That's the standard. It cannot mean whatever society thinks is right in its own eyes. That would not be a solid foundation, and you could not use the Hebrew word established for that. And people doing what's right in their own eyes. When we're establishing a kingdom for King Jesus, it's something that's solid, not just the whims of man. Righteousness is talking about being right with God. It's the, it's the condition of, of being right with him. God is, of course, righteous. He is, does all things in conformity with himself and with his, with his standards. The, pro, the answer to the problem of unrighteousness came in Isaiah 53 like we looked at already. And so with justice and righteousness, you've got law and gospel being mentioned in the same verse. How is he going to establish his kingdom? Law and gospel. Law and gospel. The law just opens the eyes to sinners that they need what? The gospel. His reign is eternal because it says from this time forth and forever. How is it going to happen? 
His reign is based on the passion of the Lord Jesus to accomplish it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hengstenberg says it's the energetic character of his love to his own kingdom. He cares so much about it, he's zealous for it. Man, I just like to see people these days that are zealous for something. I often get the impression that people really don't care about anything. You might criticize Pastor Randall, but there's one thing I know. That man is zealous for his church. I like that. Jesus is zealous for his kingdom. And when he, the mighty heroic warrior God, is zealous for something, he's going to get it. He's going to get it. You don't have to wonder. You take it to the bank. He is going to get it. He's emotionally engaged in the spread of his kingdom. Why aren't you? Why aren't you? He, he cares. We have to care. And we, there won't be a big question mark in our minds if we, if we ever wonder. Like, we won't have to wonder about that. Like, you, you don't have to look at a believer and wonder whether or not they are emotionally engaged in the pursuit of the kingdom of God. You don't have to wonder about it. You know. You can tell by watching their life that they are all in, that they are investing everything they've got into the kingdom. So my challenge to you is, why aren't you? Be zealous for this. You know, there's no plan that you have for your life that's more interesting or better than this. I'm talking to all the young people here in the room right now. There is no plan that you've got with college, career, whatever, that's more interesting or more satisfying than seeking the kingdom of God. You, do, you don't settle for something less than that. Now, I'm not saying you all got to be pastors, missionaries, whatever. But you, some of you may be called to that. You shouldn't settle for less than that. But if you're called to build a business, build that business, not for your glory, but for the glory of King Jesus. Do it. You're not wasting your life doing that. If we're called to glorify God in the little things like eating and drinking, those are the most basic things in life. Then that means it's also possible to glorify God in things that are a little bit bigger than that. Like building a business. Or like being good at your job. Maybe you don't build the business, but you have a job. Being the best at what you do in your job. Be emotionally engaged. And while you're there, share the gospel with people. While you're there, find ways, right? Use your money to invest in the kingdom while you're making your money. Do all that, man. Don't, sell, don't settle for anything less than that. The poet Christina Rossetti said this about Jesus, <clears throat> writing about him. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. He is powerful. His kingship, his authority is total. It is absolute. Whether you acknowledge it or not, the question is, is it so in your life? Does he have first, last, and final say? If he does not 
have first, last, and final say in your life, your celebration of Christmas, no matter how religious or how emotional, is a lie. The message of the birth of Christ is that our king has come. If you have not repented and trusted Christ, he's not your king. Your celebration of Christmas is hypocrisy. This is all about him being a king. Bow the knee to King Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do come and we ask that you would evaluate us. It's one thing for us to evaluate ourselves, but Lord, we want you to evaluate us. Are you king? Are you king of our lives, of everything? Not just compartments, but the whole thing. Lord Jesus, come and evaluate us. Show us. Your word says in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 that you came and you walked amongst the the lampstands, the head of the church, walking amongst his churches, evaluating them. You've done this right, but you lack this. Lord, evaluate by the word Baptist church, by evaluating us each individually. By the power of your spirit, would you show to us where we are not obedient, where we are not in submission to King Jesus, and help us to repent quickly. Give us grace that we might repent quickly. And Lord, we pray that this Christmas season, that we would see you for the wonderful, powerful King that you are. You came and you're conquering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.